Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit ExcelsiorGP.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I have with me Rob Cross. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a treat to be here. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College and the co-founder and director of the Connected Commons, a consortium of more than 150 leading organizations. He has studied the underlying networks of relationships within effective organizations and the collaborative practices of high performers for more than 20 years. Working with over 300 organizations and reaching thousands of leaders from the front line to the C-suite, he has identified specific ways to cultivate vibrant, effective networks at all levels of an organization at any career stage. He is the co-author of The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems, and What to Do About It, which we will talk about in depth, and the author of Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. And I flashed on you after reading uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal and then the Harvard Business Review about this most recent book. So I'm excited to have you on. Let's start with the impetus behind writing this book. Whenever I have somebody on the show as a book, it's a huge undertaking. It's a lot of work. It is a labor of love. And I find that there's typically a very strong force behind it to compensate uh-huh. for all the work that goes into it. So love to hear the yeah. story. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and this one actually didn't start in maybe the way you would think. I run a consortium. And uh, as you mentioned, every six months, there's several hundred companies that come together to look at the research, what we've been doing. And we put that into kind of white papers, articles, but also uh, software assets. And thanks for the members. And this is about five or six years ago. We've been running this program at work for quite some time on looking at high performers and understanding what distinguished those people that were in the top 20%. Uh, performance category across hundreds of organizations in terms of how they collaborated and 
organize their work in a, in a hyper-connected world today. And people had, had loved it, right? It led to a, a book I wrote a couple of years ago called Beyond Collaboration Overload and, and really dialed in heavily on what's creating a high performer today. But at that meeting five or six years ago, uh, a lot of people in the audience are saying, well, gosh, Rob, you should also look at not just performance, but well-being. And they were talking about it in terms of thriving, satisfaction with your life, other elements like that. And the funny thing is, I remember at the time, I just rolled my eyes because it was the last thing I wanted to go spend time on. <laughs> Everybody cared about it at that point was innovation, right? It was all innovation. But I started it and we ran our analytics and we started looking at what are the predictors of, of different aspects of well-being, the relational predictors, right? And why connections in our lives have both a positive and a negative impact uh, in ways that we may not understand. And then I started interviews. And so I ended up interviewing 600 people for this, 300 women, 300 men. And these are 90-minute discussions that you get very deep into people's lives and the effect of how hyper-connected we are today. And it totally got into my soul. First 10 minutes of every single interview, because I was getting tremendously successful people from the top organizations out there, everything was rainbows and lollipops. My life is great. My kids are here, this and that. But you get down to minute 30 and the cracks start to come in, minute 45, minute 60, when some people even ended up choking up by the end of it with kind of the, the pressure that these people are facing and they were all the successful people. I wasn't getting to anybody unless they were rock stars. And so that was the initiation of it, but then how it really took a life of its own and kind of understanding what is it that, that people are doing? Because while 90% of that group kind of went negative, it started very positive and then the cracks came in, about 10% did. And those were the people that I got really interested in, kind of how are they living today, ways they're managing profession and personal that has such a massive impact on their lives. Right. It really, in a lot of ways, forecasted this shift in orientation towards wellness and, and holistic wellness, especially within the C-suite and high performance yeah. itself. So it really was kind of preemptive into what is today above the fold articles in the journal and the New York yeah. Times. I mean, that's the funny thing. Exactly. Because if they hadn't pushed me four or five years ago, it takes quite a while to do 600 interviews to get really down into What's a real lived experience for people? And the timing just obviously couldn't be better, right? The burnout epidemic is, you know, well-known how people, companies spending enormous amounts of money as people are seeking counseling and other forms to kind of cope with the stress that's around them. And what I can say is it is heavily conditioned by the way we're interacting with others. The workload hasn't gone up that much. It's the collaborative footprint around the work that, that has really accelerated that's causing a great deal of the problem that people are experiencing. So dig a little bit deeper there, because I had a conversation about this with somebody recently in the context of AI, right? It's similar to when the internet came about, everyone thought, oh, it would create more efficiencies and, and we'd be more productive and have to work less. But what actually happened was it increased the workload because the concept of productivity just accelerated and created more pressure on these people right. who were at the intersection of all these different facets of the business. And it sounds very similar to what you discovered with this concept of micro stresses, as opposed to one large volcanic explosion, these small things start to accumulate over time. Yeah. I mean, we've been through really 10, 15 years of interventions and things that have pushed organizations into these more network-centric forms, right? And, and it takes the form of de-layering, spans and layers, agile implementations, talent marketplaces, digital strategies. Uh, one firm cultures, all these things that, that companies are taking to say we need to be enterprise wide. And then you marry that with the uh, plethora of 
collaborative applications that have come through. Obviously email, but then you throw on the Yammer, the instant messaging tools, the Teams collaborative spaces, to where most people are working across between six and nine platforms to get their work done in places. And this all makes sense in concept, right? Everybody wants to be nimble and agile and all this great stuff that consultants make a boatload of money on. But in aggregate, it's drowning people. And there's, it's not just the volume too. I mean, one of the interesting things to your point is pre-pandemic, people would come to me and they would say, Rob, I'm overwhelmed. Eight one-hour meetings, uh, day in and day out. I can't get my work done until I go home. And then somebody through the pandemic came up with a great idea of let's have 30-minute meetings. We can get you know more done, read more interactions. And so many people's lives now have moved from eight one-hour meetings to 16 30-minute meetings, and it's killing us. We're more intense in those meetings. We're switching across them which has a higher tax and less cognitively than we realize. And we end the day with a to-do list based on 16 meetings, not eight, right? And there's no reason. Wonder we're working five to eight hours more a week, earlier into the morning, deeper into the night to kind of keep up with all of this because of the fracturing of work uh, as well. So it's, it has created a situation that there's a lot of strengths to. There is innovation that's emerging from this. There is efficiencies from better scale. But the unrecognized impact is the way in which stress is coming at us in small moments, both professionally and personally, at a velocity we are not intended to experience. We're just not wired that way, evolutionary-wise. Well, and that's where I wanted to go was this biological concept, because there's stress is now something that is topical right? and anxiety the same way, right? They're not inherently bad things. They're they are meant to help us achieve certain things as humans. They have significance evolutionarily, but in the modern context, they seem to have a mass or kind of associated with this negative connotation. Can you help us kind of understand this concept of micro stress and what you discovered there? Yeah, absolutely. And it is a different form. So in my very first interviews, really where we uncovered this, it was a very successful life science executive. And we were talking about how she had uh, a significant change in her life that helped her become more physically healthy as a product of putting some of the activities she was doing in the context of other people. About 45 minutes, that was a great interview. I'm like, gosh, if I get hundreds of these, it's going to be New York Times bestseller. And, and I stopped her about half again. And I was like, well, what gets you stuck to begin with? Like clearly somebody that was smart, funny, motivated, engaged in life. And yet it hit a point that she was getting pushed by her doctor to take ownership of things, or it was going to be problematic. And she just looked at me. This interview was going a hundred miles a minute, went down to nothing and silence for 45 seconds. She said, I don't really know. It's just life, I guess. And that really hit me hard. And we dug in for the next 45 minutes and then hundreds of interviews after to really see how stress was coming at people in small incremental moments. So to your point, there's still disassociated stress, right? There's the war in the Ukraine, there's social justice issues, there's things like that. What I was hearing was very different. What I was hearing is the thing that was crushing people were small moments that were coming at us through relationships in our lives, right? And so that matters because if I'm getting pinged by somebody with five emails and I don't like them, they frustrate for whatever reason, I feel that stress more right? Because of the affect in the relationship, or if it's something that's coming from my daughter as an example, and I'm worried about her, right? I feel that stress more because I care about that person than being disassociated stress. But the difference was these are all small moments, right? You sense misalignment with a colleague in a meeting and you wonder, how am I going to solve? And that goes on the back burner. Then in next meeting, you see a team member that needs to be coached for the third time, right? And you're going, how am I going to handle this? 
keep their engagement, not them leaving. And that goes on the back burner. And then 10 seconds later, you do get a text from a child, right? And you can't tell, is it a big deal or is it something they're over in, in five seconds and you worry about it for three hours? None of this is fight or flight stuff, right? And it's all stuff that we think as successful people, you just deal with, right? You get through. But the problem is our bodies absorb this stress the same as, as kind of fight or flight stress. And so our minds aren't really registering it. We feel like we should just get through it, but our bodies absorb it. It hits us in terms of blood pressure, in terms of all sorts of things metabolically. Uh, one of the studies even showed that when we're under this form of stress, within, if we eat a meal within two hours of being under this form of stress, we metabolize that meal by adding 104 calories to it, right? The, the study showed. And you play that out over a year, that's 11 pounds based on those parameters there. And so that was what we really came to coin this idea of micro stress, right? It's these small moments that if we don't find ways to handle better, they're overwhelming people in ways that, that our brains just don't pick up. We don't see them. We don't think about them in the same way as conventional forms of stress. Yeah, the calorie data point was wild to me when I heard that. And then this, the, the part that really kind of resonated with me was when you talk about how, and as a parent of a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old at the end of the school year, this is very pertinent to me. It's like, we always say, oh, well, things will calm down next week. We just need to push through for the next couple of days. I need to get through this business trip. I need to get this deal done. And then things will calm down. But inevitably... Like the tsunami never. just, the tsunami never ends. It just keeps coming. You're, you're hitting on exactly what I think the problem is, is where we all just are conditioned to say, well, I'm not going to go complain about this, right? And, and complaining doesn't help, right? It's really about how do you restructure the interactions that we can certainly get onto. But it's not only you just kind of push through the tough stuff and say it's going to get better, but we always also have a tendency to push just over the horizon what we're going to do that's going to make us happier. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, in six months, I'm going to get into tennis, right? Or I'm going to go do other things. And so it just constantly gets pushed on. And that was the thing that as I went through this, and these were all successful people, almost everybody had a stretch of kind of three, five, eight years of their lives where they just turned around one day and they're like, what have I done? You know what I mean? I've fallen into everybody else's expectations societies of what it means to be a great parent or a great child or a great friend, great significant other, my companies in terms of all these interactions coming at us and I've lost myself in different ways. And for some people, it's more profound than others, but it was exactly what you just described that was happening. All these things are reasonable. You just get through. And then before you know it, you're subsumed because of how hyper-connected we are. That's that chronic, that accumulation of these chronic stresses over time. And you can't really point to one thing. It's like, to your point, I've been an investment banker for five years <laughs> and all of these trips and the travel and the deals and all of that kind of heartburn kind of come together over time. And one of the things I reflected on before this conversation was how people deal with that stress, right? I mean, oftentimes it just leads to more accumulated chronic stresses in terms of people turn to alcohol or mm -hmm. drugs. Or oftentimes, especially within this population set, I'm sure people just turn to work as a way to deal with the stress of work. And workaholism is something that's endemic within this population as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The vehicles they turn to can take a bunch of different forms. And I even found with myself going through this, what, what I saw, so two things, I guess, let me back up. One is we've seen, for example, within college uh, campuses across the U.S., I won't get the number right, but there's been something close to a 30% uptick in one year of these kids seeking counsel. 
uh, services. And again, the workload has not gone up. Like that's what everybody's pointing to. They say, my, my work is harder. If anything, it's gone down for these kids <laughs> through the pandemic. And in one year, you see that kind of spike. Uh, companies have seen, and many companies that are part of my consortium have seen similar surges in terms of people utilizing uh, different mental health resources. And so some of that's legitimate, right? It's probably things people needed to do before, but some of it is exactly what you're saying. We're spinning ourselves up in this, this context. One of the things I could see when I mentioned my 10 percenters, those people that kind of just were crushing it on the performance side, but were also living differently and they kind of stayed positive. They didn't go down into this, my world is overwhelming kind of thing. One of the things that clearly differentiated them is they maintained authentic connections in at least two and usually three groups that they were a true part of uh, outside of their profession. And this could take a ton of different forms. It might be like athletic pursuits like tennis or basketball or walking uh, groups that you would be a part of, religious uh, associations, poetry, music, book clubs, all sorts of things. But what we found is that kind of having an activity that puts you in the context with other people that are different than you. It's a suddenly you're not hanging around with investment bankers that all appear about the same thing and see the world the same way. It starts to, to create dimensionality in your life in a couple of different ways that matters. You know, so you may identify as a runner and you push back on work just a little bit to preserve that time as a runner. And because you put that activity in the context of maybe people like a mailman, a cardiologist, a neurosurgeon that see the world differently, you get different perspectives, right? On what my true struggles are versus kind of spinning up and different ways. So if I had one idea for your listeners, I can't tell you how important it was to have at least two and usually three groups outside of your profession. Definitely harder for the investment bankers, for the attorneys and for the consultants, right? Because of the pace of the work. But the people that lost that, they were the ones that really struggled. The the careers that would end, and you made me think a lot about investment banking because the stories that would end from some of these very top tier firms, people were conventionally very wealthy, right? but they left a trail of destruction with a couple of divorces, children that didn't talk to them and ir- irreparable health issues. And what was fascinating to me when I got in those conversations, many of them would say, it's been hard, but I'd do it again. And I would look at it go, really? <laughs> or did you just not know what could have been, right? You just got so focused on work and assuming that you have to provide at this level that you lost sight of what could be in the situation. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. Yeah, and I want to do revisit kind of resiliency and how people can handle this and how you have your kind of stories that you alluded to a little bit in terms of some of the folks that you interact with and activities that you do. But I want to go a little bit deeper and unpack the sources and effects of the micro stress mm. so that people who are listening, who maybe aren't fully getting the concept or the idea, if you could, I know you have these kind of bucketed or, or in these different categories, but I'd love to hear you expound a little bit on that. And then I want to get back into what you just talked about, which is kind of how we can handle on the other end. Right. Yeah. Great question. And so when we looked at it uh, across 600 enemies, what we could see is that these stresses tended to come at people first in interactions that drained capacity. So they hurt their ability to get work done that they needed to get done. And forms of that form of stress would occur in terms of misalignment when teams that you're a part of, people have agreed in the room, they're pulling in different directions. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're trying to resolve that small misses for people on your teams. And so what we would typically find, it wasn't the big slacker that hurt us today, was the fact that people are in five, six, seven teams in general. And if you happen to own an initiative and, and that group before comes back to your initiative at 95% done, those are all small misses, right? And they're all reasonable, but it multiplies to 20% to you, right? Four times 5% because of the interdependence of the work. And the, the challenge is most people just absorb it. They say, I'm going to work through the night. I've got to deliver on this. And a lot of times in what you taught people is, okay, 95% was okay, maybe 90% the next time. And not at all, because I think people are nefarious. The thing that was really clear to me as I went through this is people are making decisions today more and more on which balls to drop and not how to excel because of the, the overwhelm out there. So there was a, a set of five interactions like that, the drained capacity, hurt our ability uh, to, to get things done. There was a second set of five that really had to do with the emotional impact of the interactions around us. And so that certainly could take kind of conventional ideas of conflictual conversations, right? And things that you worry about before, during, and after a conversation that you have to have. But it could also take the form of worrying about others that you care about, like a team you're trying to project or an investment banking. The thing you hear an awful lot about is people trying to protect the bonuses of their team and arguing over that and worrying about, am I taking care of my team as well? Or it could be people that you love right? Aging parents, siblings, spouse, whatever it is that's kind of coming at you. And so there was th those interactions actually hit us worse because they're spiking us a little bit emotionally in there. And then the third set of four were interactions that just kind of challenged our identity and who we set out to be as a person. And so that would take the form of excessive revenue goals in places where you're forced to oversell or efficiency goals where you're forced to treat people right in ways that you don't want. So for example, that was the one thing with the physicians in their work. They put a huge investment of their lives into being believing they were going to be able to treat patients a certain way. And then they're stepping into these systems that are, you know, very much efficiency focused and pressuring them. And that just is, it makes them somebody they didn't want to be at the end of the day. So we, we see that there's 14 of these across those three categories, drain capacity, the emotional impact and identity challenges. And there's a table in chapter five. We kind of go through each of them as their own challenges and things that you can do. But the key idea is for us to kind of in aggregate, look at that and say, okay, where are two or three or four of these coming at me in my life that I can do something about, right? They're systemic enough in my life that I can alter it and identify those. And then 
take a second pass through this table and say, where's three or four of these things that I'm causing unnecessarily. And that always shocks people when we do this in big polls or things. But inevitably, what you find is the stress we unnecessarily create for others comes back to us in a different form. Right. So you lean on an employee too hard and they back away and suddenly you're having to work harder or you lean on a child too hard in a way that just doesn't matter in the scope of it, but you're irritated and it comes back and having to repair the relationship or belligerence. And so it's important. The, the less we create, the less we get back. And then the third pass through is what, what do we need to rise above? Where have we just gotten down into the weeds on things? And there are two or three points in our lives where we look across our interactions with peers, bosses, loved ones, et cetera. And I find that is a really effective way to, to, to kind of get down into the tactics, right? Of, of what people can do about this uh, specifically. Yeah, your diagnostic tool is super powerful. And I think if people take it seriously, it'll be profound what they find in terms of how they're operating their businesses or their professional life. A question for you, you've been in this world for a long time. You talk to all of these high achievers. On some level, do you think there's also just this dynamic within the American business culture of you always hear stories or, or read about how we work more hours on average than almost anyone else in the world. I mean, it's also challenging, and I'm sure you heard this from your interviews, to try to push back on this just global systemic dynamic in our culture that like work is part of our identities yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, and again, I go back to what I was saying, because I think it, it subtle, but it's really critical is my 10 percenters. They were doing great at work, but they had authentic connectivity in at least two and usually three groups outside of their work. And so they, they weren't defined entirely by their profession. They may be wildly successful at it. It was a big component of who they were, but it wasn't the entire thing. And that is exactly the issue. When people's stories ended really poorly, it's because, you know, the vagaries of work dictated everything and kind of who they were. And so it's a really critical thing. Now, the challenge today for us is there's a legitimate increase in the stress that most people are experiencing as a product of how you know connected we are, <laughs> the pace of business cycles, things like that. The other thing that's hit us through COVID is the social distancing pulled us out of these groups, right? They were actually helping us to deal with this stress by, in ways that we're talking about now. And many people haven't gotten back in. You know what I mean? They've just kind of become a smaller version of themselves. And so what we see is you're thinking about this and listening in and you say, oh my gosh, I've done that. I've dropped the book club. I fell out of the basketball league and I'm not singing in the choir anymore, whatever it is. What we see are kind of three, three approaches. One is to pick a passion from the past and use that to slingshot into a, a group, right? A different group. My, one of my favorite interviews was a head of neuroscience, neurosurgery at one of the leading institutions in the country, hospitals in the country. And he went through these discussions with me, called me a couple of times. He said, I've gotten many dimensional, you know, and I've overdone it. I've done it to myself. I've allowed myself to become a workaholic and claim, oh, I'm providing for my family, right? When it, when I'm providing way beyond what I need, this is more about me and my own tendencies. And so his solution was he used to play guitar in high school. And so he went into a music store, bought a guitar on his way out. He passed by a flyer that said, we're looking for a guitar player. And what we lack in quality, we make up for in volume or something like that. And uh, he joined the band, right? And he just called me like three or four months later. And he was just kind of chuckling about it. He said, rather than playing rock band. And he said, it's the best thing I've ever done. Right? I'm deconnecting, disconnecting from work. I'm hanging out with 20 year olds. They're never going to be my best friends, right? And that's one of the catches in this is we think we just are going to get this from best friends. 
but it is a form of resilience that's in my life because of the way they see the world, the way I make time for it, the way I think about myself has shifted. And so that's one easy thing, right? Passion from the past, use it to slingshot forward into a new group. Another easy thing is look back to connections that you have had that were vibrant that you can re-engage and call them up. One, one strategy we've used a lot is to say, take seven days, one full week and set up seven, eight minute calls with people you want to reconnect with. And it sounds silly at first, but nobody turns down an eight minute call or they don't try to say, we have to schedule it in four months when I have time. And they'll laugh at you until you're laughing right out of the gate. Just say, this is an experiment. This is what I'm playing with. And the jokes will start flying immediately. Like eight minutes is a lot. Could we do seven minutes and 30 seconds or whatever? But then you get into those interactions and everybody wants to reconnect. They're really looking for it. They just need some structure to put into it. And usually they'll peel off into other things you're doing with people, right? So passion from the past, use it to slingshot forward. Connections you can rejuvenate, LinkedIn, whatever it is you look back to, to get to. And then the third thing is a little bit more nuanced, but it's seeing what you're already doing that if you can pivot slightly could pull you into groups in a different way. And so my story there was a, in the book was a very successful Silicon Valley executive. She'd been a runner all her life and uh, through college and, and then up to the point I was talking to her in the first 20 years of her professional life, when she would run these races, if she didn't get a personal best time. It would be a bad year for running. And that's, of course, a losing strategy in, in general. But she woke up one day and she's like, wow, that's not why I want to run, right? I've fallen into society's definition of what running's for, right? Is to hit that personal best time. And she said, I realized I really want to be running with my daughter, her best friend, a parent. And it evolved into a community of people in that neighborhood that were running with their children, right? To promote physical activity, health, time with their kids, everything else. So you see what she was doing. She was taking an activity that she already did, right? It wasn't a new thing to go create a sense of purpose. It's what am I already doing that if I pivot it slightly could pull me into connections that I care about. In this case, it was family and community. And I find if you start looking at your world that way, right at, at work or outside of work, we have enormous opportunities to do things that don't allow us to do exactly what you said earlier, push it six months over the horizon, right? That was the big difference with my happier people. They weren't hiking the Himalayas, right? Or writing concertos. They may have, been, but that wasn't what was defining them. It was the small moments that they live more intentionally with others and kind of architecting that into their lives. That was the, the big thing. And I can't help but think when you make those comments about the decline, civic organizations like Rotary or Kiwanis, or even local political organizations that people used to be members of that they've really gone away and you read mm -hmm. stories about, or you see the numbers in terms of attendance at church or temple or religious organizations have gone down tremendously. I think there is something to that, right? It doesn't have to be one of those things, but those right. things all have commonalities of a diverse group of people that aren't in your industry, aren't in your zip code necessarily, something that's unassociated with your profession, and it does take you out of your day-to-day -day context. There's something, there must be something to that. And we've lost a lot of it, I think. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. What I'm introducing in the second half of this book, Karen and I, is really, if these institutions are falling off, here's the kind of interactions you're trying to architect. Right in there, there are actually a bunch of ways that you can do that to kind of pull that back in. So you don't need to necessarily join a club, but there was a really a, a book that really had an impact on me written by Vivek Murthy 
He was the past Surgeon General under Obama as the current Surgeon General again. And he coined the, I think the term, the loneliness epidemic, or he brought it to attention. Yeah, he just did an op-ed, I think, in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see it, but his book was is called Together, and he really dug into exactly what you're saying. It's a fallout in the authenticity of our connections with others, right? And, and, and literally a third of Americans fall into this category of being clinically lonely. What got my attention was the significant effects uh, all these studies are showing. So falling into that category of being clinically lonely had this equivalent mortality rate of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. People, other studies show higher blood pressure, physical impediments, a dementia, all, all sorts of things that are negative. And so it's fascinating to me, like we will, as a society, we will chase cholesterol medicines, blood pressure medicines down, and yet we'll ignore something that has the equivalent impact on our lives. We just don't think about it, both in terms of how do I shield from the negatives, right? How do I adapt the negative interactions or how do I, you know, lean into connections that can create this kind of authenticity differently. And so I know you mentioned this in, in the book and the articles, but what have you done personally to, to so, kind of yeah. push back against this? Yeah. So for me, I'm much more aware of the small moments. And if there's one thing I hope listeners get is it's too easy. And especially if you're driven by accomplishment and success, it's too easy to just kind of take on everything, right? Everything is just one more, right? I'm going to get through it. I'm going to work through it. And I'm much more attuned to thinking about when something's hitting me that I can adapt what to do about it. So I'll give you, you know, one kind of funny example. I have a daughter that's a very high-end tennis player going through juniors. And I used to follow her around the country. I knew nothing about tennis. I was just trying to help her be as successful as she wanted. And we, because we were from a small market and she didn't have a whole community of kids around her, she just fell into a pattern of relying on me in these tournaments all the time. So anytime anything went wrong, she would say, she calls me Baldy, right? That's her nickname for me. She said, Baldy, this, is, this didn't work or whatever. And we just found a pattern that, that ended up persisting into her early 20s. Right now, she's graduated from one of the best schools in the country. She's applying to med school, a very accomplished young woman. And yet still, on a daily basis, I'll get a couple of Baldy texts right around this. And what we discovered is it's just her knee-jerk reaction. Right? It's just what she's gotten used to doing. She would send these things and not think about them afterwards. Five seconds, it'd be done. I, on the other hand, they'd be in the back of my mind for three or four hours. And so one night over a glass of wine, we're like, well, if you can stop that, that would help me. I don't really want to be precise here. I wasn't telling her, don't come, right? I was saying, if it doesn't matter, don't share, right? And she has, and it's had a material impact on my life. But again, I want to emphasize, we're focusing on the interaction, not the relationship, because when she needs me, I'm there just as quick or quicker than before. And if anything, the relationship's better because I'm not getting hit with some of the stuff that doesn't matter at all. So we have more latitude to change things like that than we, we, we think about or realize on the negative side. And that really matters. We know the negative interactions in our lives have three to five times the impact of the positive, right? So if you're not looking for ways to adapt these negatives, then you're leaving some of the highest leverage impact out there. So on that side of it, I'm more attuned to where are these small moments that I can make shifts. And then on the other side, the positive side, I'm a huge proponent of being an authentic member of, of three or four groups, right? And so I'm very in, in deeply into tennis and a couple of different groups that I play with, a cycling church and another group that I go water skiing and fishing with. And I treat them very carefully in my life as, as important as other aspects of work, which I didn't do, right, for a lot of my career, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's 
hugely important and a great lesson for a lot of us. I'm 41. You get into middle age and it seems like between your work and the kids, it's a challenge to find the time. Yeah, I've rediscovered my college lacrosse team. We get together twice a year. I have no interest in playing lacrosse any longer, but it's important to carve out that time. Right. These are guys that I used to spend a lot of time with that are meaningful to me. They're doing different things. And I've just made a commitment that no matter where, when, like I'm going to show up and do that. And it's great. And we have a text chain going and it's fun. Right. Right. It has impact on you in ways sometimes that you don't realize, even if it's two events a year, the text that you see, it it grounds you, you feel reconnected to something else. They are out there. And if something goes wrong, like there are people in that group that would be supportive for whatever level. So it doesn't have to be a huge amount of time. And like with my runner example, again, I want to really emphasize what I find with these people is they're really good at, at multiplexing, right? They're accomplishing several things with one activity. So running with her child, is a good thing, or a dad that would organize father children soccer events every Saturday morning, right? He's hanging out with his friends from the neighborhood, spending time with the children, getting exercise, three things, right? All all in the same swoop. So that definitely becomes important kind of mid-30s to mid-40s with most people. Yeah. Well, Rob, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome. If people are interested in learning about the book or getting the book or connecting with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. So the book is the micro stress effect. It's on Amazon and other sellers for sure. And always appreciate that. My best way to contact me is my website. It's robcross.org. And there's other resources that we put out on that website. We built an app to help people work through this stuff. There's videos, there's things like that too, to think about. So thank yeah. you for, thank you for having me. A hundred percent. And I would echo that there are some great resources on the website. The book is terrific. I definitely encourage people to check it out. Please do leave us a review and, and commentary on what you found to be the most interesting part of this conversation. And Rob, one question we ask people to come on the show, you may have already covered it, but do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your lives? Daily practice for me would generally be physical activity. I think I toy with meditation uh, here and there. I kind of get into it and, and fall out of it in different ways. It's a great thing. But for me, I tend to find these like tennis cycling things like that I'm doing with these other people because it's combining kind of both notions, both the benefits of the exercise, the, the social side too. So I think that would be probably what I would say. It's a great question. You, yeah, you see me processing kind of real time. I think yeah. yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for sharing. And uh, best of luck with the book. Thank you again for coming on. This is great conversation. It's hugely important, especially for people in my peer group and generational cohorts. So thank you and kudos mm-hmm. for all the hard work. Good deal. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 